and say, hey, how do we bring data into doing things we've never done before, bring technology and bring new work practices? How do you how do you think differently about manufacturing and all the areas that we that we do that we use in this business that have been slow to change in the past that now is the time because the opportunity is going to be there. In fact, I'll tell you this. And a friend of mine told me one week ago, he's a he's an oil and gas investor, said, uh, Ryan, he's about two years old now. He said, because uh, I'm going back in private business, and we're talking about acquisitions. That's when he said, Ryan, I think the biggest opportunities of our lifetime are going to happen in the next 12 months. Oil and gas today is more than exploration and production. It's more than the feet drilled or the hours of continuous pumping hours. The oil field is a group of people, companies, technologies, and institutions working towards providing the world with safe, affordable energy that is sustainable for the billions of people that depend on the success of the industry. The Oil Field 360 podcast is a 360-degree deep dive into the leaders of the industry who will provide listeners with a first-hand account of what it takes to build, maintain, and lead the energy business into the future. Oil Field 360 podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, is one of the largest and most experienced energy investment banking firms in the industry, offering M&A advisory, capital markets execution, and investment research. For more information, please visit www.simmonspsc.com. World Oil. For more than 103 years, World Oil has provided global decision makers with coverage of the latest market intelligence and technological advances relating to the upstream oil and gas industry. To subscribe and learn more about these essential resources, please visit www.worldoil.com. Prang & Associates, the global energy search leader. Prang & Associates is the world's leading executive search firm totally dedicated to the energy industry. Over our 39 years, we've assisted more than 750 management teams and boards in 75 countries and conducted nearly 3,600 engagements. For more information, please visit www.prang.com. EIV Capital EIV Capital is a growth equity-focused private equity firm which has been providing capital to the North American energy industry since 2009. The team has extensive experience across the entire energy value chain. We invite you to visit www.eivcapital.com and learn how we partner with entrepreneurs to build businesses. Galtway Industries Known as the most connected and value-driven manufacturing partner in the oil field, Galtway Industries specializes in developing and implementing supply chain solutions for top-tier OEMs with a specialty in steel forgings, castings, machining and fabrication designed to exceed expectations. Visit www.gultwayindustries.com to learn more. Tomahawk Safety Tomahawk Safety is a leading manufacturer of oil field safety gloves with products that are ergonomically designed for superior fit, offer best-in-class protection, and stand up to the industry's toughest jobs. For more information, please visit www.tomahawksafety.com. Range Valuation Services Range is the only oil and gas-focused valuation and appraisal firm in the financial services industry. Range specializes in appraising and valuing oil field equipment, machinery, inventory, and property, and customarily works directly with clients, lenders, investment bankers, insurers, and private equity and debt sponsors. For more information, please visit www.rangevaluationservices.com. Lockton Global Energy and Marine 
uncommonly different. Lockton is the world's largest privately owned insurance broker and risk finance advisor. Lockton's energy expertise is largely centered in Houston and represents the largest concentration of energy specialists, clients, and experiential knowledge in the upstream, midstream, downstream segments of the oil and gas industry. Besides risk finance and risk management consulting, Lockton provides commercial insurance and employee benefits brokerage, as well as human resources and retirement consulting. For more information, please visit www.lockton.com. Welcome to the Oilfield 360 podcast. This is a special edition podcast today. Watching us from the production room, everybody is social distancing. I need to point that out. My name is Josh Lowry. This is the Oilfield 360 podcast. I am joined, as usual, with Dave DeRode, the co-host extraordinaire. David, welcome. Good afternoon. Good yeah, evening. It, good evening. Yeah, this yeah. is a little bit later. So just for numbers, today is the 15th. Uh, it is uh, the afternoon of the 15th. It's the day after the open meeting for the Texas Railroad Commission. So on that note, we have Railroad Commissioner Ryan Sitton as our guest. But because of the specialness of this interview, we've brought in another guest host, John Daniel of Daniel Energy Partners. John, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Now, wait, does that mean I'm a guest host too? Do I get to ask questions You can ask as some well? questions yeah, as we go. It's wide open. To get real fun yeah. then. Okay. Yeah. So actually, your, your energy is exactly the way this show is. Look, we, I always ask people. Might compete they, with Josh on that, but uh, <laughs> well, we get it. We we drink too much espresso, and and we just it hypes us up, or hypes me up. So what I always tell people about this: if it's usually your first podcast, which it is, most people's first podcast, they don't know for good or bad. Okay. So it doesn't matter. But yeah. this is not your first podcast, right? So uh, mm-hmm. we're just going to tell you that we're the best. Which of course. we are. So, but on that note, we're going to just going to jump right into it. You have one of the things that I've talked to you about so far this morning or this afternoon is uh, you had a very long day yesterday. You had an eleven-hour open meeting. Uh, how was your energy level for this? Are you ready for the next hour? Heck yeah! Yeah. Oh come on, dude. Actually, in fact, today was was just as long as yesterday. My day always starts usually seven a.m. and that's that's my work day. So my, I actually get up four thirty-five in the morning, get my workout in, get my my walk in everything else start the day at seven o'clock and so i'm used to cranking pretty long yesterday went a little bit late but um you know it was this it's a relatively consistent day so this is a good way to wrap up so i'm going to ask just a couple questions uh just personally to kind of give some background and then we're going to turn over to david and john for some other questions but you are the texas railroad commissioner uh you're one of three you obviously didn't start there so how did you you know i've done some research on you're an aggie yes sir okay there, I'm sure whoop. a couple of people in their car just whooped. Yeah. There you go. What does your career path look like from A&M to here? I mean, can you give us a little background? Oh, yeah, sure. Mechanical engineer out of A&M, graduated in 98. My first job actually out of college was with Oxy, oil and gas company. Although, interestingly enough, with Oxy, I started in their chemicals business. A lot of people don't know Oxy has a, a PVC business that I started in. So I was working in one of their chemical plants was there for a little bit of time. And then they ended up as the market, this was 1998, 99, the market was changing a little bit, did a little bit of oil and gas work for them, but but was always officed at their plant, even when I was doing some oil work for them. Then moved to Marathon and actually started with Marathon, doing a little bit of upstream work, but very quickly moved back downstream. So it was, I, I did upstream and downstream work all for Oxy and Marathon all in a matter of about three years. It was really fast. And this was 98, 99, 2000, 2001, when there, the big downturn in the industry, a lot of things were shaken up fast. Which really was a created opportunity for me because I learned a lot about a whole lot of different businesses really quickly. In 2001, 
I went to join a small company called Burlanger, which no one's ever heard of. It was a small engineering firm. Uh, when I got there, there's about 150 people or so stayed there for almost five years. And then November 5th of 2005, I was fired. Siemens, the big multinational company, had come in and bought Burwanger. And I had started a new division at Burwanger and was kind of moving up there, was pretty close to the owner. But the number two guy who was taking over and I did not care for each other. And it was time for me to go. And uh, luckily for me, I left there end of 2005 and then June of 2006, started my first company. And company's called Pinnacle. Still in business today. In fact, now that I'm going to, when I finish up my term as Rotor Commissioner, I'm planning to go back and be the CEO there again. But uh, ran my own company for about eight years. And then in call it 2008, 2009, I started getting really active in politics. Uh, not as never thinking I'd be a candidate. Uh, if you'd asked me and, you know, when I started my company, if I would ever run for public office, I said, man, you're an idiot. Why would I do that? Um, got into it, though, and, and really developed kind of a passion for energy policy. Also interacting with other elected officials, realized kind of the shortage of technical people. And so they're in office and, um, in 2000 and I guess in 2012, 2013, when Barry Smith decided or Barry Smitherman decided he was going to run for attorney general and I ran for railroad commission. And here I am today. Real quick before we get it. So you mentioned that, uh, you have to, you're going back to be the CEO of the company. When, I am. So I, I, that kind of surprises me. I didn't realize that the Texas Railroad Commissioner job was one that you step away from your full-time employment. Because I know there's a lot of state jobs that you do in tandem. But. Yeah. The, the executive branch jobs in Texas. So governor, uh, actually lieutenant governor is is actually an unpaid job and he's supposed to only in session. But Dan Patrick, our lieutenant governor, works his tail off. He's yeah, exactly. that's a full-time gig. Yeah. But um, attorney general, comptroller, ag commissioner, land commissioner, and your three railroad commissioners, those are all full-time jobs. You don't have, you don't go in and out of session. So yeah, you, now you don't have to, I mean, if you have a, some, some people who are attorneys, they'll still practice a little bit on the side. But for me, it was actually less about my time requirements. Cause by the time I started, I, I started serving as a railroad commissioner, Pinnacle was a pretty decent sized company. We had 500 employees. It was more the, the, the concern amongst citizens that there might be a conflict of interest. And, and I'll tell you, I, I didn't really appreciate that when I ran for office because Pinnacle was all downstream, almost no ENP business. We had never crossed paths with the railroad commission. So I thought there's no conflict of interest here. I can still stay connected to that company, but serve in public office. What I didn't realize is, and I realized this through the campaign, my first time that my opponent was making a big deal out of this. Oh, conflicts of interest. And, you know, I'm like, man, that to the average Texas citizen, that doesn't make sense. You're in the oil and gas business, regulating oil and gas. That just smells funny. They, they don't know the intricacies. So by the time I got elected, I had decided, man, I'm going to I'm going to move away and put parts of this parts of my private businesses in, in blind trusts and really separate myself so I could serve in office and not raise concern. And that, that I did not go into that plan to do that, but but ended up having to do it. OK, so uh, last question, John, and then I'm coming to you and David here. So that brings us to yesterday. Yeah. Just from a standpoint of what did yesterday feel like to you and not the specifics, but just the energy, the questions, the intensity. What did yesterday feel like to you? Yesterday felt like three elected officials doing the work they were elected to do. And I say that because any idiot can serve in office when there's when all you have to do is what people are already doing. Right. But we're dealing with unprecedented times around us today. Yeah. I mean, 25% demand destruction in oil and gas. We've never had that in the right. history of the oil and gas business. And you're watching huge amounts of layoffs and bankruptcies. I mean, just they're slowly coming, but they're coming fast. 
And so I'm not saying whether or not we are going to prorate. We still got a lot of discussion to have, a lot of analysis to do, but we definitely need to be talking about anything that can bring stability, not just from an industry perspective, but from a planetary perspective. Hmm. There's not a single person on this on, on this earth in developed nations that doesn't depend on energy every day. And when that energy price fluctuates dramatically or it's unreliable, that wreaks havoc on economies. And so yesterday was was uh, the culmination of a lot of discussions since the COVID-19 th- mm-hmm. thing started. Demand destruction started going down. We started hearing concerns. If, if you watch any of it yesterday, I mean, literally half the industry is on one half of this issue, right. half's on the other half. And, and, and here you got three commissioners doing the work to find out, man, do we have waste? Do we have economic waste? What's causing it? And at the end of the day, is there a role for us in prorating this? That's what people elect us to do. And so it felt like, man, we're it's hard and it's challenging. You, there's stress, there's conflict. And that is exactly what we're elected to do is way in the middle and try and figure out how to do what's in the best interest of the state of Texas. So I think one of the interesting things is that, you know, Scott Sheffield's come out with the Pioneer and then, of course, partially as well. And they're in favor of the proration and kind of got this thing going. What was... Did you get any, was there any takeaways from yesterday's session or is it too early to comment about that? I mean, Josh, John, myself, we were in and out of it, had it on going on in the background. As you can imagine with all this stuff going on, we're on a lot of calls talking to folks sure. uh, as it relates to this. But did y'all, did y'all, were there, were there any conclusive thoughts that came out of yesterday's uh, all day long uh, discussion? The marathon. Yeah, the marathon. Yeah. Um, if you're going to do an 11-hour marathon, much better to do a Netflix SVU special, yeah. right? Than <laughs> you know, the, the commissioners haven't been able to talk yet because we can only do that in an open meeting. And so sure. we won't have a, an actual discussion on this for a week. But I'm sure uh, Christy and Wayne are, are, are kind of decompressing. I took, I'm not exaggerating, 27 pages of notes. Yeah. Right? I mean, just just it, writing down tons of stuff. And, I, and I've started to go through that today a little bit, but still trying to download it. Let me give you, though, since you asked some early some early impressions, some things that that – I wouldn't say surprised me, but that stuck in stuck out in my mind. One was, did y'all listen when Will Van Lowe came on yesterday? He had been for it and against it, or it, vice versa. It, yeah. Will was Will had been against yeah. it. He said he talked about being for it. And you know, it's hard to argue that Will doesn't have a vantage point that's as wide as anybody in the industry. Really. I mean, you're right. talking about a guy that runs quantum energy partners. They're the it's arguably and and John, you can yeah. weigh in. If he's not the biggest, he's one of the biggest investors in terms of real dollars into the EMP space than anybody. Very large and very smart. Very large, very smart. And yeah. uh, and boy, his description of what's going to happen. And so very large, very smart. And yeah. so he not only has the as an investor, you know, he sees what's happening, but also can anticipate. And this guy's made a made a lot of people and a lot of a lot of states, a lot of institutions, a lot of money by sure. being very, very good at what he does. Mm-hmm. And he outlined a picture that was, I'll say almost graphic, which it's with its description of the downturn. And so you got wasn't like it was just all little mom and pop oil companies. I mean, you had some really sophisticated guys saying, hey, you know, we've got to do this. You had some really sophisticated guys saying, no, we shouldn't touch this with a 10 foot pole. Right. So the the sort of the, the dichotomy in the conversation yesterday really struck me. And it, it was, I don't think a lot of people saw that coming. I think they were expecting, oh, it's just pioneering partially and everybody else is against. It was not that way at all. So that struck me. When you realize that Harold Hamm was the 41st speaker. Yeah. It, you That you realize how intense yesterday was. Good. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And Will was toward the end there too. So, yeah. or, or later in the program. Something else that struck me was 
the description. So, so we went into this saying, look, all the politics aside, the statute actually is really pretty dadgum simple. It, the statute says that, that the railroad commission is there to prevent waste. And one of the definitions of waste is production in excess of reasonable market demand. It is black and white. And, and it doesn't say that if you feel like it, you, it says in the case that the railroad commission identifies waste, the railroad commission shall take measures to address that way. So it's, it's, it doesn't compromise on this. Yeah. So my point, and when we start with the meeting, we say, at the end of the day, that's what this is about. It doesn't matter. I mean, we can get on here and, and opine about free market mm-hmm. and in Texas history and everything else. At the end of the day, none of that's written in the statute, right? So I tried to right. take it there. What surprised me was how few people addressed the statute. Very few people touched on that. You had a lot of people, oh man. And look, I'm as free market, a conservative, limited government guy as you will ever meet. In the end, this was about the statute. And so I was surprised that less people talked about the statute. A few did. I thought, frankly, Pioneer did a really good job setting it up, talking mm-hmm. about the statute. And others talked about it as well. But the third thing I'll say, and then I'll let you ask a question that struck me. I don't know if you picked up on this. When, when the guys were coming up, particularly those against were saying why there's not waste, there was a constant message. Look, we understand that there's an economic challenge to the current environment. And I said, yeah, and I, I think that's waste. It's kind of been my position. In fact, in my entire time at the Railroad Commission, when we've evaluated flaring or water disposal or anything else, one of our jobs in preventing waste is the economic waste. Well, Todd Staples, the head of Texo, yesterday, it's not your job to consider waste, basically. And I, I asked him, point blank, are you telling me you don't think we should consider economics when we consider waste? He said, that's right. Then there's been some chatter about that today in kind of the political community, like, uh, that's a big deal. Because if I'm not supposed to consider way, uh, economic waste, I guess I should just go outlaw off flaring. I don't think that's what we should be doing, but that seemed to not click. And so that... That struck me a lot. Those three things came kind of popped out to me in our discussion yesterday that I think showed up, showed that this discussion is much more complicated and much more conflicted in a number of areas than a lot of people realize it was. That's interesting, and I appreciate you sharing that. I think one of the things that John and I were talking about earlier, kind of waiting to sit down with you, was that looking at who was there, I know there were, I think Josh was saying there were like 20,000 uh, folks that were tuned in. 29,000 uh, independent viewers. 29,000. Yeah, 29, that's, that's, yeah. yeah. that's unbelievable. It's crazy. Isn't it? yeah. But one of the things that, that shocked John and I, obviously, we a lot of our guests have been more OFS focused, but certainly we intend uh, and, and have plenty of people lined up from the operator side and the midstream side and the downstream side that will be coming on the show because it's a kind of a 360 uh, discussion. But we didn't see anybody from the service community community talking about this, which is directly impacted by this kind of black swan event, uh, nor did we really see anybody from the downstream community uh, representing or, or at least speaking. Did, was there, did you find that interesting or surprising Surprising, or was that intentional or? Uh, no, it wasn't intentional. Yeah. Uh, we did have one oil field service company guy spoke yesterday. Canary. Canary. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to remember who it was. And look, I appreciate his comments. He came out and said, I don't believe in this is the right thing to do. Um, you know, really thoughtful. I know he's going to go through a difficult time. There has been a lot of speculation. I mean, a lot of the service companies do business with some of the companies who didn't believe in proration. So felt like they couldn't step out and weigh in on this one way or the other. Uh, from the downstream perspective, you know, you, you've in fact, you didn't see any of the any of the majors 
right? You saw the the big and major independents or big independents, but no majors. And so I sure. think they, which is pretty typical, right? They, those companies are very successful. You know, you, we all know who I'm talking about. They are very good and they, they're good operators. They're good social stewards. And they're also very good at managing risk. And in general, getting out in the public is not, that's, that's risky for them, right? So I totally understand that. And that's where a lot of your downstream assets are represented. Now, for your independent refiners, right? Your P66, your mm-hmm. Marathon Petroleum, not your Marathon Oil, right. totally separate companies. To those guys, I think that they're, I have talked to them, to some of them informally, and I've heard some commentary, but I think in their case, they're like, you know, at the end of the day, this, this argument about proration, we have an opinion on it, but not a big enough of opinion that, that it's going to have an impact. In other words, we, we can weigh in, but in the end, it's either going to come across like we're operating in self-interest right. or, or, and we really don't have enough of, of enough weight to sway this thing. So it doesn't really, doesn't really matter to us as long as something really bad doesn't happen. One of the things um, you talked, you have to go back and you, you'll visit with the commission. Can you just play out the, the process from here? Do you, do you have, there was so much information conveyed to you guys. It would seem like you don't need any more data. <laughs> right. Right. But and then at what point last, you know, long winded question, but at what point do you just go with your gut on this? I mean, yeah. there's so much to digest. Is there time to digest it? We can't just go with our guts. So let me start okay. with where you ended because it, in the end of the day, there's a mechanical question to this. Right. I mean, I could vote for proration or vote against proration. In fact, I could vote against proration and the thing's over. If I've, if, if, if we vote for proration, there's a whole lot of questions about how does that actually happen? Right. And you know, is it by lease? Like we used to do it, our actual lease schedule. Is it by operator? Is it, do we, do we make adjustments for certain fields, make adjustments for certain types of production, right. uh, adjustments for small operators, big operators? So there's a whole lot of mechanical questions that we have to answer. Back to your question, how does this thing play out? Yeah. So we have a meeting on April 21st, and that's our next open, that's mm-hmm. a regular scheduled Railroad Commission meeting, which I'm sure we're going to discuss this. And, and I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do in that meeting from a discussion standpoint. Uh, from a vote standpoint, we could either vote yes, vote no, or pass. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say there's a decent chance that we that we pass. In other words, not that we don't want to don't want to take the vote, but that was, there's not that we need more data, but we need to time to an, analyze it further. Especially when you consider the fact that these 9.7 million barrels aren't off the market yet. Right. So a lot's going to happen just in another week. So so one more question. Yeah. I'll, I'll let you, yeah. So we're going to go to the 21st. We'll 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 have a meeting then and at that point we'll probably lay out hey there's more analysis to do and we'll be looking forward to at what point we might take a vote and see what happens in the rest of the world is the reason i sort of bring that up is having been a stock analyst in my prior life we're about to hit earnings season here and a lot of these emp companies will be giving guidance on production and so forth and just for me it seems like why don't you just everyone just wait two weeks and see exactly what these guys lay out yeah might help you formulate the decision and i don't know if that plays in at all to the thought process. It absolutely does. As a matter of yeah. fact, we've I've, I've talked with my team. My my I've got a analysts that are not as sophisticated as you that work not that for good. me, and uh, and so we, you guys have seen. I do a lot of market right. analysis myself, and not just earnings season here and announcements, capital announcements. I mean, we're getting them constantly, but also you know, look, there was a there's reports yesterday. There seemed to be some fairly big, fairly good consensus that Cushing was going to reach some sort of storage the CEO of enterprise, which I appreciate Jim T. He got to say, look, storage is not going to fill up. And, and he's right. It's not, but you'll reach a point at which practically speaking, there's not a lot more you can, you could put out there at the ins and outs have got to equalize at that point. Right. People seem to say that's, that's a month away. Yeah. Right. Well, in a week, we're going to have a lot better visibility as to whether or not that's really a month away. And right. so you're right. We're, there's a whole lot of data we're going to be getting over the next week or two. And, and let's say this too. We're also going to know, hopefully, 
what the COVID-19 reaction is. Right. Are we going to stay sheltered in place for another three months or are we going to be kind of open things back up in May? So all that is data we're going to get that will help inform us. Yeah, because I, again, I, I was an oil service guy, not an EMP person, but as we call all of our friends in the oil service community, the carnage that's going on in terms of the frat crews being released, the rig counts being released, you know, work over rigs being sent back to the yard, not even doing basic maintenance. It just seems to me like the production drop off could be quite substantial and maybe you don't need to intervene at all. Well, let, let's, when he says carnage today alone, three companies that we are friends with shut their doors forever. Right. Really? And, and who two, are they? Can you, can you say, uh, I'll, I'll, just for their sake. I mean, I'm don't not sure. Okay. All the I know there's public. If not, well, they, they are, they're public companies, but I mean, ultimately they're, they're both 40 year old companies mm. and done forever. And we're talking one look, one has 14 locations. The other yeah. has two. Uh, and then the other one's based up in Oklahoma. I mean, those are three companies that within however many weeks are just done. Well, and I, I get back to this is really if if Scott Sheffield or, or one of the even let, let's not use Scott. Let's yeah. use one of the small producers that was here yesterday. Don Sparks. Um, I'm trying to think uh, Alan Bloxham. I mean, some of these guys that were I'm trying to remember names yeah. I wrote down yesterday. I think that what they would say is, yeah, but you could you could literally lay off every single oil field worker. I mean, every, every oil field service company worker, you could, you could literally shut it and no production is going to come offline. Right. Like, right away. Yeah, exactly. And so their issue is that all that production is going to come offline in six months. And by then it's too late. What we need to do is take production down now, yeah. get some price stability, get some minimal amount of operation, and then don't fill up storage and let us kind of work through. And so I think what the, the problem is, is, and there's been a lot of discussion about this. No, no, no. The market's responding. All this capital is coming. Yeah, I get it. A lot of people have made the point, but that's almost, no, that doesn't mean any oil production is coming offline. And this is so fast. It's so acute mm-hmm. that the fact that that's, yeah, it's going to really help us in about three months by the time this is all over and everybody's gone is Everyone, way yeah. too late. Well, I mean, I actually, you know, John, while you're, you're looking at that, I, you talk about the three months, what's been absolutely just astonishing is the rate at which the collapse has happened for, the oil field service companies, the OEMs, um, you know, one of our largest customers today basically just said, hold off everything for four months. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's four months is a long time. And, I, and if that's happening to me, I know that's happening to, right. to everybody else out there. I'll go back to just some of the, the, the process, but let's assume you guys did vote for the prohibition. Okay. You know, do you come out and it, it, is there a certain duration that you're limited to legally or can you use it? How we, how would the duration play? In no, the, dude, I'm not limited to anything. I'm a really powerful guy. Yeah, <laughs> I say this in jest, yeah. but the it's actually striking the power the railroad commission has if used. But no, literally, railroad commissioners could come out and say we're going to vote fifty percent proration for two years if they wanted to. Right. Okay. And that may get challenged in court and some other things, but they could do that. Practically speaking, uh, what what everyone is pushing for is something very very temporary. In fact, mm-hmm. one thing I have pushed for is. Should we or could we tie this specifically to na- national or state disaster declarations? Because then one of the concerns is how do you unwind this? And I've got that same concern myself, right? I'm not going to be at the commission in January next year. Right. Yeah. And so what if just so happens and let, let's let's just be really blunt. Let's suppose that the railroad commission got back into the proration business and somehow in the next couple of years, a couple of anti-oil and gas people got elected. Well, it would only take two to really shut down the entire oil and gas business. So I'm sensitive to not overstretching the power of the commission based on the fact that you have three relatively sensibly sensible mid, mid middle mm-hmm. of the line kind of pro business, pro economic Republicans on there. If you got a couple of, you know, wild cards that could really be scary. And so, 
if we tied this to, you know what, let's, one of the proposals has been cut 20%, right. uh, which would be around a million barrels a day. Let's leave that, let's tie that cut to the national and the state disaster declarations, which right now may only run through, say, May. At that point, we cut it back to half that much and let, and make it go only one month after that without us taking action. So the idea would be that for the next, that would probably be only two or three months, it would actually be prorated just enough to give you some cushing, mm-hmm. some, some cushion in cushing. Uh, storage and, and give us some time to stabilize things. But how do you, so that we're talking about Texas, right? You're the Texas railroad commissioner, but we don't really have any control over New Mexico, which as you know is a massive oil producing state. Oklahoma. And, well, let's let North- you say it's a massive oil producing state. I mean, the next biggest to Texas is North Dakota, right? Well, right? in North Dakota. Yeah. But the economics are kind of in some ways. Now I've got some producers that are still surviving. Obviously we had a, you know, widening filed bankruptcy, but that's a geologically speaking from a, from an economic perspective and, and where the, where the easy money is, it's not necessarily in North Dakota, but more so in Texas and in New Mexico. Well, especially if you're talking, well, I'd say this, if you're talking Cushing storage, I mean, there's plenty of North Dakota crude that flows straight to Cushing. Sure. So here's, here's my, yes, it's true. Texas coming into this was at about 5.3 million barrels a day. And one of the challenges, man, if you cut back Texas, then all you're going to do is incentivize all this development over these other states. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody said this yesterday, but some leading conversations up, people were like, that's the biggest load of bull I've ever heard. So even if oil prices go from, say, $21 a barrel to $29 a barrel, Texas cuts a million barrels a day, which is basically all of New Mexico's production. Right. You think New Mexico is going to suddenly put a million barrels a day on the market? There's no way. I mean, right. they're shutting down rigs too. You can say, well, how do you know that New Mexico is going to cut 10% as well? What, 100,000 barrels? I mean, it's just, I'm not arguing for or against my, but when I, when people have made that argument in this environment, I don't find that to be very compelling. No, I, I agree with you. I, I wanted you to explain that because I- I, I know you I, did. I knew you were being friendly. Yeah. <laughs> well, the other no, uh, because I think, other, I think, go ahead. Those John. other areas have already seen a much yeah. sharper drop in- oil field service activity and DNC activity, the last you know, Oklahoma and the DJ versus the Permian the last year. They have, and, and, and they're, they're at the back end of the, of the supply line anyway. Yeah. Right. So if, if they're going to take anybody that, well, the, the, you know, if you got a midstream company who's telling you saw, you heard yesterday telling Texland, we, we won't take your oil. We got a contract and you're just saying, no, I'm sorry. They're, they're just too small. So they're going to take the big Texas producer first. So they're actually, the New Mexico guys may get hit harder by this than we will just in steady state anyway. Yeah. So I appreciate the question. Cause you're right. I've been, I, I, I don't know that the cheating so much is going to occur at the state level to your point. I, th- I think everybody is super skeptical of OPEC, OPEC plus sure. and, and that, and I read an interesting article the other day talking about the, the true actual production. And I don't necessarily know that the production numbers that Saudi has put out or that people that the media keeps putting out there are actually accurate and s- same with Russia and some of yeah. the other stuff. But uh, it's a, it's an interesting issue. I th- you know, one of the questions or discussions I was having with uh, Jim Tremuto the other day was in regards to, you know, this whole idea of, you know, maybe picking the winners and the losers and kind of ties into the broader kind of ESG conversation, which was really about risk management. Like how do you survive difficult times? And this is a black swan event. Like, I don't think anybody said they could have ever prepared for this. Some people might survive because of their balance sheet, you know, but I do have a fear about some of the 
uh, smaller producers where they're good producers. They didn't have a lot of debt. They just did what they did. But economics are economics versus some of the guys that, you know, operating on the fringe, took on too much debt. You know, not everybody gets a participation trophy and not everybody, not everybody wins. In some ways, I think this is good for the business because it'll weed out those, you know, the Darwinism is sort yeah. of takes effect. But it, I mean, do you agree that a flushing of the system is, is needed? Yes. Yeah. And I think you've, I mean, heck, I'll go back to Will Vanlo's yeah. comments yesterday. You know, this, this industry has had some really peaks, some really nice peaks and really big valleys in the last 10 years. And as an overall, though, investment, it's not been good. It's had a really poor right. return on capital. So when there's been all this, oh, man, the banks are shut. Before COVID-19, the right. banks were really cutting capital. There was a lot of talk that that was because of ESG issues. And, and well, it really was because the, the returns weren't there and they were worried about their 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 money. Their money, yeah. yeah right. And so, you know, there's a, I, I do think a flushing of the system is good. And I'll tell you, back to the small producer, what I'm hopeful for is that there's going to be a, some – I'm hopeful that the – there are some companies that are that have got a lot of debt. They're they're fairly. They got some expensive assets. They got some expensive infrastructure, and just man, it's it's not necessarily because of their size. They just the economics aren't working. And my hope, what we see is that that there's a there, there's an equal spread of those. Like the guys yesterday, I, I, the name of Don Sparks, and I know Don from being in Midland and, and others that they can hold on through this. And so you know what, we'll shut in some wells. We're we operate out of our own cash flow. We'll just hunker down. And next year, after a couple of these big independents go bankrupt and their wells are all shut in, holy cow, we can really make some money. And I, I, yeah. I'm hopeful for that. My, my, in fact, I would say if it was only about the economics, the Railroad Commission should definitely not get involved if that was all it was. The big issue is the small, the small guys like Don Sparks uh-huh. maybe say, I'm producing oil and I'm willing to sell it for six bucks a barrel. It's not that... Uh, it's not that the price is too low. It's that the big guy up the street is forcing to take their oil at $10 a barrel because they got enough volume. I can't get mine in at six. Mm-hmm. That That's where I go. That's something. That's not the way the system was designed to work. That's why pipeline rates are set. That's why nominations are done the way they're done is to try to give equal access to midstream. And there's a lot of concern with the Cushing, Cushing situation happening that that's, that that's not going to happen. But this pro-rationing, does that solve that problem? That sounds that, like a different problem. Well, it, uh, that's the question. Yeah. Does pro-rationing actually solve that problem? There, There's a, let's say it this way. If there is, let's call it today, 30 days left before Cushing reaches a, a, a pressure point, it would start to back up. And if we take a million barrels a day out of Texas production, which not all that would come out of the Permian Basin, but let's say, let's say two thirds of it does, mm-hmm. that may buy us actually another 20 days in Cushing. Right. And if it does, then that's another 20 days that they that they can keep taking product from people until they have to you know, start saying, I'm sorry, I can't take it all. And so it does buy a few more days for the small independent producers. But can you do it that quickly, though? That's the question. Too. That, that's another question. Yeah. I get to mechanics question. Can yeah. we? I don't know. Now, I will tell you this. The, the analyst in me, who's not as good as the analyst in you, <laughs> the analyst in me, look, I've got numbers. Somebody yesterday recommended, hey, just go back to fourth quarter production right. numbers. We've got those. And say, based on his fourth quarter production numbers, we're going to prorate off this amount. Now, somebody yesterday said, well, yeah, if you do that, then I'm just going to shut down my entire drilling program. Actually, when the Railroad Commission has prorated in the past, well, they've done it. They said, we're going to prorate based on the, your current production and the number of wells you have. Mm-hmm. If you add a new well, 
than you actually add to your proration schedule. Right. So it, it doesn't have to mean that we're going to set an absolute value. It says, okay, based on the number of wells you've got, company X, you can produce 10,000 barrels a day. If you go out and drill a new well and that your new allowable on that well is this high, you you get a, new, a little bit of new volume, but not total. I, I say to myself, I think we can do that pretty quick. If we do it by producer and we do it based on their previous production schedule, I mean, I could we could do this fast from a, Railroad Commission standpoint, I think the bigger question might be how quickly can the industry actually get that done? You know, right. what does it take for them, a big independent like a Pioneer or right. a Concho or a Diamondback to really manage all that? That I get that that's a little more difficult. Okay. Now, I'll say this. That's a lot of speculation on my part, sure. right? So this, when you asked earlier about, you know, what's the steps here? How much analysis needs to be done? That's one of the things we have to figure out. Okay. So- Obviously, Pioneer and Parsley and a few others are, are in favor of this. Have they given any insight to the mechanics of of how that w- would happen and how quickly yeah, that could happen, the solutions? I mean, they have. In fact, I'll tell you this. I've had a lot of operators, even, even people that said they were, man, I'm not really in favor of this, but if we were going to do it here might be a way. So there's been a lot of those suggestions that have come. Well, it, it has to be that way. You can't just throw out all the bad. I mean, right. this, this, this is a problem that needs solutions. Yep. Right. So that's why I mean, I, I appreciate the dialogue that you started here because you can't just have people being upset. And one of the, you know, as we did our pre-show notes, everybody's fighting for what's good for them. Right. Yeah. And it, I didn't mean to cut you off there, no, but, no. but I'm, it's only can be about solutions. I, I like the way you said that. And you're right. That ought, we all be all coming with, hey, these are, these are ideas. Just not just take the don't do anything approach. Somebody, in fact, after the show yesterday, somebody called me and said, you know, what's interesting is ask yourself this question of everybody who spoke yesterday who offered an opinion that was counter to their own interest? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All politics are local. And this is what's interesting. He's like, really, who, who was a speaker yeah. that offered in a position? They said, my interest is that you do this. So what serves me is if you do this, but I'm actually thinking you should do something else. Right. Uh, Will was pretty candid. I don't know how much money he's raised, but he, Will, <laughs> Will Van Lowe is one. And a lot of people talked about Will's comments. Hey, that guy is a private equity guy. He's in the business of buying cheap assets, right? right. So it, this... And I think he even said on the base, like, this is in my interest. If I if I was operating my own interest, I'd say, let all these guys go bankrupt. I'm going to pick them all up for pennies on the dollar. Right. Um, interestingly enough, I don't know Pioneer's business, but Pioneer, you look at their debt, their their revenue, cash flow, and debt structure. It's one of the best of the big independents. Hmm. I don't, Scott didn't talk about that, but put it this way, if I'm a, you, you're an analyst. Right. Right. If I had to buy stock in one of the big independents, it's hard to beat Pioneer right now in terms of stability. If you were arguing, I, I don't know how this would be in Pioneer's interest more, for example, than it was in Diamondbacks or Marathons or those. So right. it just raises interest. Is there a way that I know because there's speculation from small guys that it's just an effort by the big people to force them out of business to buy them on the cheap? Yeah. Okay. Well, there's been a lot of that speculation. Sure. Right. So can the commission say during this time period, there can be no transactions on lease properties? You no, can't, can't write. Okay. Yeah. It's not in our wheelhouse. And, and, that actually, I would get that's that's even more concerning to me, right? Yeah. Like, just regulating production—that's a fairly narrow purview. Right. I think that we could say, hey, as a as a free market, as a conservative in these extraordinary times, maybe we take that step. And I've likened it to others. I mean, look, only during the proration period—that was where I was going to go. Oh, like, well, yeah. So, so I mean, if we're going to have proration for six months. You can't buy any. There's no deals for six months. We can't do that. You can't. Okay. Yeah, and I wouldn't think we'd want to anyway. Fair but, enough. Uh, but still, it's a, those are the kind of creative things we ought to be talking about. Yeah. You know, as we've sitting here, we're talking, um, you know, New Mexico came up, North Dakota. Uh, obviously, these are American oil plays. So they're they're most likely on your radar. And you're maybe talking to those commissioners 
even before this yes. kind of collapse? Is that a regular conversation you have with those people? Actually, no, it hasn't been a regular conversation. And to tell on myself, I'm a little bit, I'm, I've been disappointed. I haven't built a better rapport with them. I've talked to, I mean, I've talked to the Alberta, so not just the United States, but you know, yeah. you can't talk to Sonia Savage. I've talked to folks in New Mexico, uh, Oklahoma, and and um, I haven't, don't think I've connected with, with North Dakota, but but it's all been just during this process. Okay. If I were to go back in time and do it again, I would have built a, a better connection with those folks over the last few years, so that it'd be there for times like this. You know, and listen, I'm John and David have told me to keep my views to myself, so I will. But I do appreciate that aspect of you know reaching out to everyone and having a, a, a jointed, you know, at least a cohesive version of how we're going to do American oil and gas. The reason I bring up these different locations is your names come up in a lot of places uh, that you probably weren't talking about six months ago. (laughs) And, and I mean, I I think it's an interesting conversation. I actually, I think that uh, you probably were put in a spotlight very quickly that maybe you expected or didn't expect. I don't really know. I did not expect. I would imagine that was the case. So you're, you're talking about what you would have done and that's fine. I mean, everybody, you know, these type of events hit us so hard that Everybody would have done something, right? Oh, sure. So my point is, is can you kind of give us uh, some insight into the last 90 days? I don't know exactly how long this has been. Well, I mean, I know how long the downturns happened for me anyway, but what have the last 60 days been like for you? Um, you, Again, you're talking to people you've never talked to. I'd like to know that your opinion on that. And because of your position of January, 2021, what are lessons we need to learn? Because I'm a big believer, and I know that these gentlemen are as well, in some change has to be here. We have to come up with some type of solution. That's why I brought up the word solution and change. So please, what what have you learned in the last- And how are your stress levels? (laughs) You know, it's interesting. My stress levels are high in some areas, but I'll tell you what's really nice. Y'all have kids? Yes. Yeah. Any of y'all have kids like the junior high, teenage years kids? No, we're- 18 year old twins. 18-year-old twins, okay. Yeah, I got the six-month-old. Six-month-old? <laughs> okay, you're not there yet. Seven and nine. Okay, so you're starting to get there, uh, Josh. All right, I've got a 16-year-old, a 14-year-old, an 11-year-old. And what happens is, and you don't even realize it, just kind of it just kind of starts happening as you in the, and you'll know this, John, from your having two 18-year-olds, that by the time your kids are in high school, your entire evenings and weekends are dominated with kid events all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, like literally all the time. And you don't realize it, that your whole life is consumed with kid events. So it's like, I used to have a relationship with my wife. Now I've got a relationship with the volleyball court. I mean, really, like, it's just the weirdest thing. And we're so, it's such a norm, cultural norm. And and so while my stress level has been high in that, man, there's so many things to be done, but not just in terms of railroad commission and energy policy and global oil production, but also I've got my eye on going back into private business and that's stressful. I mean, right. I, we own a wedding venue up in Tennessee and man, are all of our weddings canceled this year? I mean, you know, I'm dealing with this laying off employees. I mean, this is hitting me at the same time, right? Unrelated to oil and gas as as well as in oil and gas. But at the same time, every night I go home and my family and I sit down to dinner and it's unbelievable what a stress relief that is. Like I said, you, you guys with younger kids, you, you, that's not new to you, but you, I mean, you remember when your kids were like, when your twins were say six and seven, that was not an irregular thing. When they were in high school, it was, man, we actually got to have dinner together tonight. Holy crap. That's a real weird deal. Yeah. And it's amazing how stress relieving that is. Cause when you go home you kind of hang up work for an hour or two, and then you need back on again, but for that hour or two, you're talking to your boys about building Legos today and your daughter about daughter. My daughter's actually gotten a job. She's working at one of our companies during this cause school's out. So why not get a little work experience? So how many Legos do you own? 200,000. Impressive. Yeah, we're a huge family of geeks. My poor boys. <laughs> <laughs> Sad. Anyway, 
So let me let me would you ask about the the, yeah. the last 90 days because I think it's really interesting. I, actually to tell the story, I gotta back up for a second, talk about 2016. I'm at a dinner here in Houston or lunch around here in Houston, and oil prices were just above $27 a barrel. Remember when they were bottoming out there? Yep. And there's December, but yes, keep going. Yeah. yeah. So there's uh there's probably I don't know, 10 or so oil company CEOs, executives sitting around the table. We're having lunch. It's a it's a political event, but it kind of kind of like we're doing here, except that we didn't have microphones. And we're just chatting, talking up. And one of the guys, very successful dude, I really respect, leader in the energy space in Houston, says, Ryan, what do you think about proration? And it was like, man, you could have heard a pin drop. We're at the Petroleum Club. And it was like everybody like, clank, you know, look over. And um, and I, I had actually thought about it. And I said, listen, just say his name was John. I said, listen, man, John, I understand where you're coming at. And he, and, and he was kind of advocating, man, prices are so low. And I said, this is a market-driven thing. Right. This at this point, two years prior, Saudi had crashed the market by dumping more oil. And I believe at that point it was about Saudi getting control of the rest of OPEC. I don't really think they had their sights set on Texas. We were just an ancillary benefit. So I said that this is a market driven thing. We got to let this. I know it's painful for you. I got off the phone and I said, I need to. And, and there was an interesting discussion that ensued there. There, I would say by half and half, some of the executives thought you need to do something. You ought to consider operation again. Some thought not. And I'm like, man, is my opinion half cocked on this? Should I be more thoughtful? So I said, I'm going to call a real oil and gas leader and ask him what they think. So I call Scott Sheffield. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, this is 2016. Scott, man, I just got an interesting conversation and I'm talking about proration. Scott said, well, what did you think you should do? I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> he's going to nail me. I said, Scott, I, I don't think we should do this. He's like, you're right. Shouldn't touch it. Absolutely not. This is a market driven thing. Market's got to respond. All right. 2016. Right. Fast forward now. A month ago, I'm start. I'm actually on a drive. Believe it or not, I'm driving back from Austin to Houston, and, and COVID nineteen starting to hit. We're starting to hear real reports. So this is, I guess, four weeks ago, five weeks ago, real reports of demand destruction coming in. I mean, it's like there's nowhere oil companies don't have a, don't know what to do. Oil prices are crashing all over the place. I'm thinking to myself, man, this would be the time people ought to be asking about proration. Like it just popped mm-hmm. into my head on its own. I'm stewing on it. And literally on this drive, I'm like, it's just one of these three-hour drives. I'm on the drive about an hour and a half. I'm going, man, I, we should be thinking about this. But I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Sure enough, I get a call on that drive. Like, as I'm thinking about it, a guy calls me, another oil and gas executive. Mm-hmm. And he says, uh, Ryan, we got to think about proration. I'm like, man, it's funny. You should call. Wasn't one of the guys that was sitting around the table that day. It was another guy. I'm like, you know what? I'll call Scott Sheffield. He'll, he'll set me straight. I call Scott. Scott says, no, we need to be thinking about it. Literally, that's how that went. Yeah. And so that began this whole process. Now, I don't know if Scott had been thinking about it already. I don't, I don't, I, Scott's, Scott's, Scott knows the industry. My guess is I didn't put any thoughts in his head. But I, right. as we, as I started to, un, and that was, I guess, just a few weeks ago, I started calling other oil executives. And I called guys who said, Ryan, you're an idiot. Don't, th- there's no way this is stupid. Guys like, absolutely, we need to be doing this. I mean, I heard equally. The problem was the conversation was all very kind of just one-on-one. I was like, man, we need more public dialogue about this. So I decided I call my team like, Hey, I want to write an op-ed uh-huh. to talk about us considering proration. Because I think if I put it out in their public domain, let's see what the reaction is. Right. Is it, Hey, this is a good idea. Let's <laughs> consider this. Or is it, you know, we're going to drag him out and tar and feather him. Right. Right. So I put the, the infamous op-ed out that dude, next thing I know I'm getting calls from the you know secretary general of OPEC saying, Hey, we need to talk. And that was, I did not see that coming, but right. it was a way to kind of elevate the discussion to the public domain. Since then, man, it has been constant. Everybody calling who you can think of weighing in with their opinion. And I mean, it's for everyone I get for, I get one against, or one I get against, right. I get four. Even, I mean, Wayne Christian put out a statement. I don't know if y'all saw this in which he basically said, Hey, I've got some real reservations about this, but I'm willing to consider anything. And I read a statement. I was like, that's kind of where I'm at. 
And then the media was like, oh, chairman dumps on. I'm like, this is like this. I didn't he, he actually had to put out another op-ed to say, look, I'm not for or against Ryan. I'm just saying, you know, we, we should open this up for discussion. I actually uh, really appreciate the discussion. Right. I, you know, one of the things I did some research on you, and I'm not going to go too deep in this because I don't want to get myself caught up on something I don't know. But, you know, the Texas Railroad Commission is, first of all, it, the name in and of itself is confusing for yeah. what it does. So that's point one. Point two, you have people that are on the commission. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you're the only one that has any oil and gas experience. That's right. Yes, that's great. That's fine. I mean, elected officials, uh, that's our government. You know, the, the world is run by those who show up. So my question, I, I, not a really a question as much as a statement is, I appreciate getting this out in the open and letting experts, Sheffield and the, the list of 55 names that I'm looking at, whether they are for and against it, I'm sure you picked up 27 pages worth of notes that you didn't have three days ago. Yeah. And that's the only way you can make a decision is if you have all the data points, if you talk to this, you know, even this interview that we're going to publish this interview probably in the next 48, 72 hours, this will get feedback and we'll have more discussion exactly. and more information and data points. So it doesn't do anybody any good to go up against the smartest government. I shouldn't say smartest governments, but listen, Saudi Arabia, Russia, those are, those are smart people. Uh, running big do trillions of dollars worth of economies and to go against the United States with a commission that doesn't have uh, access to the entire industry uh, as one voice. So listen, I appreciate you bringing it to the forefront. I, I know you did take some heat. I immediately emailed you when I first read that and said, look, you need, I would like you to come on the podcast. That, that's a, appreciating you coming on here, but yeah, so I don't really, I'm kind of rambling because that to me is a big point of we need discussion well, and, and your, and your energy is you, perfect. Because there are a couple points I want to say. One is, and talk about the discussion, what was really cool for me is, because look, some, some guys who I really respect have come out against this a bit. Lee Tillman from Marathon Oil is a brilliant guy, lovely. He is, he's one of my favorite guys to talk about, to get his take on the market. His, his knowledge breadth from the major to down to the small independents, just phenomenal, lovely. Travis Stice runs Diamondback, is a prince of a man. He's mm -hmm. an absolutely great CEO. That company's going to do phenomenal things. And they've been pretty vehemently against it. So we've, well, I butted heads with some guys, both of them, by the way, big Aggies as well. So we're, but just, I mean, and then that's across the board. Great guys who who I appreciate. The guys who run the majors. I mean, some of the, you said these guys. Yeah. I mean, I've I've done business with the majors over the year. Great companies. I mean, there are a lot of great people with who are who are brilliant who have come on on different sides of this. And I, to your point, the discussion is good. One last thing, I'll, I'll let you ask another question. I'll tell you one of my funnest time, moments has been chatting with the Russians on this, because you know the kind of storylines that are alive today that, that still seem to feed off the Rocky versus Drago of the, I mean, like this. Break him. Exactly. I mean, and I, dude, I've got it. I mean, I've got Talk about the sort of, and some people say, oh, Ryan, you can't try Russians are all lying to. I'm just telling you, when I got the phone on the phone with Alexander Novak, all he wanted to talk about was stabilizing, stabilizing the industry, making sure energy was, was reliable and affordable for the whole earth that, and not, not in a way that was altruistic, but just that's going to be good for Russia. If we do sure. that, it's going to be good for the United States. Really interesting to make those connections uh, and and hear those guys talking about the exact same things that we're talking about. And that, that was really cool. Yeah. So that was kind of one of my questions. You've been invited, I guess, to to OPEC to go. Invitation still open, and are you going to? As far as I know, that, I guess if it gets rescinded, I'll yeah. tweet that out. That might yeah. make news, but yeah, yeah. so far uh, they extend that that invitation early on uh, in this, just to, I think as a way to kind of keep to get the conversation started. And I plan to go in June. You should definitely yeah. go. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. You're not going to win anything if you're not at the table. 
It, yeah. And I say when, but you know, there's just as you need people at your table, they need to hear us and we need to hear them. There's well, a- I think it'd be great to hear you to be there to, to speak on behalf of, of, of the state of Texas and, uh, and the oil and gas industry. Yeah, we'll take the podcast. <laughs> no, I'll carry the bag. Yeah. Well, as Kent Hans said, he, he said this on the, he said, he goes, man, People used to ask me, why do you go into the oil? Oh, OPEC meetings? Ken Hans, former railroad commissioner. You've been around Texas politics for longer than I've been alive. He said, man, listen, if I was in the carrot business and they were having a meeting where they were setting the price of carrots, I'd want to be at that meeting. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good way to put it. That's a good way. Did they invite the entire commission? Not that I know of. You should definitely go. Okay. So no. I, I had uh, some folks from the industry ask me to ask you this question. Just get your, your thoughts on flaring. Please as a method to, you know, potentially help limit production and then also perhaps more stringent rules on regulation, if you want, P&A work on wells, just if you could yep. elaborate on those. The Let's talk about the P&A work short first because that's pretty – look, at the end of the day, we've got a pretty consistent set of requirements around plugging wells mm-hmm. if, if they're on your abandoned list, how you either have to bring them back online or show that they're economically feasible. I don't think that there is a lot of – I don't think there's, I don't think us doing anything there would add a lot. Okay. Now we have a big list. The railroad commission does backlog of our own wells we need to work on, but that won't help either. Right. I mean, it's not going to take any well offline. I, I can do anything to address this. The flaring one is one that, as, as I said early on, got really interesting when yeah. you had several big independents and Texoga say, you guys need to know, need to no longer consider economics when you're considering waste. Because I'm like, I think to myself, okay, so if you're telling me all I need to consider is physical waste or molecular waste, mm-hmm. And we're flaring natural gas right now. Clearly, we're wasting molecules, but I've taken the approach that that as part of an overall economic picture, that's acceptable. Because if I shut in wells for a natural gas product that's worth nothing at the wellhead and therefore don't allow that oil to get to market, I've created economic waste. But if you told me not to consider economics, then maybe I should ignore that. Mm -hmm. So I think that that discussion is probably going to get more interesting before it gets done. I do think the commission has to take a more aggressive stance on flaring. Um, I, I put out a, a study just to pull some data on the, on how much flaring we had and intensity levels, everything else. And I talked about the fact that, look, I'm just telling you, here's U.S. flaring intensity levels, overseas flaring. And actually, U.S. is one of the better ones. I think only Saudi Arabia is notably lower than we are as a nation. doesn't mean we can't get better. But one of my issues has been everyone calling on the, on the United States to reduce flaring. I'm like, mm-hmm. dude. Some even European nations flare worse than we do. Certainly Middle Eastern nations do. So let's talk about the balance here. We could create more problems by artificially shutting and flaring here if we don't manage it kind of on a global level. Of course, the media is all over that, environmentalists all over that. But the point is, I think we need to do something more aggressive. I just, I've just consistently said we've got to be really thoughtful in how we apply that. And to give them credit, I think Texoga and some of the oils companies have been talking about how to do that. Whether or not we tie it to some attempt at proration is a bigger question, right? Right, and I think that gets hairy pretty quickly. Um, look, it's a mechanism, and you've heard a lot of companies talking about actually just just say you can't flare any more than two percent. That'll take four hundred thousand barrels a day off the market and reduce a flare and and reduce sure. flaring. That might be something. And I can do that fast. Right. I mean, talk about something we could do fast. We could vote on that in one week. That'd be done. I don't know if that's where we go. I just will say I think it's become a bigger part of the conversation since yesterday than it was before. Okay. Do you when you look at the whole flaring issue? Do you guys? Man, I know you're very busy, but do you ever have enough time to actually go look at? Some of the physical solutions to capture, you know, reducing flare, some of the products that are being built by the OFS space. Yes. Okay. Now I say physically look. I mean, I'm not going out and examining their equipment, but in terms of look, looking at the schematics and talking to companies about them and what do they do and how do they work. Yeah. My question always is, 
Like, say somebody, some company will come in and say, oh, man, I've got a I've got a localized gas compression system that's small and compact. You can compress and store or I've got a power generation system. You can hook it up to the. Well, at the end of the day, one thing is if someone's concerned about a CO2 in the atmosphere, generating power doesn't actually reduce the amount of CO2 sure. in the atmosphere. I'm still burning the natural gas. Right. Back to this. One of the issues I ask everybody who presents a technology, I was like, can this be economical without some sort of regulatory requirements? Right. And the answer is get a little gray there. Sure. And so on the flip side of that, if it already is economical without me doing anything, why do you need to talk to me? Why don't you just go sell it to the company who's out there flaring right now? I mean, why wouldn't they buy it, right? And so I have yet to see somebody present a really great on-site gas capture or gas utilization tool that's economical that can be used on any size flaring installation. Some of the big ones maybe, but usually when they get to the small ones, which is where most of the flaring happens, they say, yeah, the economics don't work. So that becomes a difficult one too. But that's my, my space is limited. I mean, I've seen all the solutions, yeah. but based on what I've seen, I haven't seen one that's, oh, this is the cure. Well, maybe when you're at that OPEC meeting, you can ask them why people aren't putting more pressure on China and Japan with the coal-fired power plants to take some of that gas, either our gas or Russian gas or Middle Eastern gas to bring Well, power. you know, that, that, so one of the questions we heard early on in this collapse was America should use this time to make itself energy independent. Like all this, you know, let's stop importing. And we've and some of John's notes are about tariffs, putting on yep. tariffing oil imports. Is, is, That's going to get controversial quick. But I love that discussion, so I'm excited. Yeah. Well, the tariff? The whole thing. Tariffs, importing the whole thing. Go ahead. Well, that's, I mean, what is your take on all that? Because, I mean, there is, you know, I've heard some valid conversations that say this could be our moment to self-insulate. Yeah. And so this is the reason I love this discussion is my, my experience has been all throughout the entire value chain, literally from the E&P space midstream refining all the way down. And, and here's the thing that a lot of people don't is not as strong as it is because of E&P. It's not as strong as it is because of midstream. It's not as strong as it is because of refining. It's because of all of them put together. And I actually wrote another op-ed about this recently, trying to get people's ideas. If you disadvantage U.S. refining to global refining, our EMP business goes away. You got to have a strong refining infrastructure. If you do away with our EMP business, our refining infrastructure really struggles. The, mm-hmm. the two advantage each other. I'll, I'll run some numbers. In the, the world today uses 100 million barrels of oil per day, right? Or would if it weren't in this demand destruction. 18 to 19 million barrels a day of that is refined right here in the United States. So almost 20% of the world's refining is done here. Mm -hmm. However, the refining infrastructure doesn't sell all of that refined product back in the United States. It sells about 5 million barrels of it overseas. That's a big deal, right? So you say, okay, I got 19 million barrels they're refining and only 14 of it stays here. 5 million barrels goes overseas. Now, if I force a U.S. refiner to buy more expensive crude than his overseas counterpart, they can't compete overseas. So immediately 5 million barrels a day of demand at our refineries is gone. So I can't, so I can't disadvantage them. And another thing, in order for a refiner, the reason our refineries run so much better than the rest of the world is, is two things. One, the refiners here have made the investments to make, they're the, they're the best run plants. It's like, imagine two race cars, mm-hmm. right? At the end, I can put better fuel in one and it'll go faster, right? That's crude oil. Two, I can put a better driver in it. That's the operator himself. Or three, I just have a better race car. It doesn't break down as much. I mean, in the United States, we have the best fuel. We've got the best drivers and we got the best cars in our refineries. Every Virtually every barrel of oil we make in the United States, all of the 13.5 million barrels when we're at max production, 12.5 million plus of it is ultralight sweet crude, right? The refiners have to bring in a heavy blend to, make the, to optimize our refining runs. 
So hence, you see them today importing nearly five, four and a half million barrels a day from Canada when they're at normal levels. Canada can't even sell that crude if it's not for West Texas Intermediate to blend. So the refiner says, I'll take that really heavy, nasty stuff, blend it with this light, sweet stuff. I've got the really optimal crude blend. And now I can pump this refinery and I can make the most cheap, right. affordable fuel and pump it all over the world. I mean, that that value chain is unbeatable. Add in there the fact that we're producing the cheapest natural gas in the world, which is like the second largest energy cost for second largest cost for refinery. And our refineries are running like clockwork. They're beating the rest of the world. So there's this kind of natural battle between oil, oil producers and refiners. Oh, the refiners are sticking it to me. They're also your that's that's your customer. That's the most symbiotic relationship you can come up with. So, no, we should not we should not try to get off foreign crudes. Right. We should absolutely buy them and bring them in and optimize our slate. What we need to do, and in fact, tariffing the same thing. If you put a tariff, added tax, or a, anything that causes those imported crudes to go up in price, the U.S. refiner is disadvantaged. Yeah. Can't bring in that heavy sour to bring with that light sweet. We won't buy the light sweet here at home. So it, it is almost 7 o'clock, and we're not ending this yet. I'm just letting people know 7 p.m. You've been up since 4.30. I want, I want the audience listening to know that the amount of energy that just came out for that answer, which by the way, that's a phenomenal answer. I appreciate the thought behind it. And it's, but it's very clear that you are passionate about this. I'm a geek. At what point, at what point can we be incredibly disappointed that you're not going to be on the commission going forward? And because I feel like this energy, it's mandatory. It's necessary for the Texas railroad commission that handles oil and gas. I mean, at what point can we be upset about this? Because I'm starting to get upset about this. That's nice of you, Josh. Really, and I do. I have my disappointed days, but let me tell you, this is the reason our political process works as well as it does, and it's far from perfect, right? But the reason it works as well as as well as it does is because because you lose. I mean, it's because you can be replaced, right? And and so I'm. Look, I, obviously, I think I'm a good railroad commissioner, right? And uh, was disappointed to lose, and it's. it's Wanting to get into the, how the losing happened, but uh, unless y'all want to talk about that. But um, the bigger thing I would say is this. There's a lot of people around the Railroad Commission that make it successful, right? The companies that that go and deal with it every day, the the law firms that go and, and do work at the commission, the staff that's been there. I can start rattling off names to you of the staff members I've gotten to know who've been there 20, 25, 30, 35 years that make that commission run. One commissioner is not going to make and one commissioner is not going to break that commission. And so while I appreciate what you're saying, the other day that commission is going to be there. It was there long before I got there. It's going to be there long after I'm gone and be proud of the history of Texas. Uh, no, I listen. Are I'm, of, a, I'm a native Texan. I am proud of Texas. And honestly, I'm my brother and I have a joke that uh, if Peyton Manning can get fired, anybody can get fired. <laughs> so, you know, it's you, you losing does teach you stuff. I hope that uh, your political career isn't over just for just taking a hiatus here. And the guy who replaced you, I'm sure he's a fine human being. Uh, we can get into that if you want to as well. But it's at least he has some oil and gas experience. I mean, I've never met him actually. Never even talked to him before. I've never been able. We'll to just assume him. he's a great guy. I I, I, I'm ho- I hope so too. I do too. And yeah. from, you know, look, it doesn't matter which side of the you know, who you vote for for president. I'm rooting for whichever president to be successful. Exactly. That's so, like yep. you know, and, and my thought is I did do some research on this, whoever this new guy coming in, he does, he is from oil and gas. He does have oil and gas experience. I heard that, yeah. So to me, that's 
that should be mandatory. You've got to have some oil and gas experience. You can't be, <laughs> you know, a financial planner. I mean, you can have those type of people, but you need people that have oil and gas experience to be running the most important oil and gas agency in the United States. I'm biased, so I think so. <laughs> no. Well, I'm I, I don't mind trying to put words in your mouth, but I'm these again, these are my thoughts. This is my my podcast. I can and that's how I feel. Like I do feel that this is this is such he'll it, even wear purple uh, shoelaces by so the way th- i can't believe it took him an hour into this podcast to make fun <laughs> of my shoelaces but uh it's a critical time in the industry is changing right i mean there is a diversity and inclusion that's never happened before which is exciting to see you know david mentioned esg which he's got an esg council that he runs that is uh taking off you know john is doing some of the the preeminent research in our industry and and what you're finding out is that, you know, look, I'm a third generation oil and gas guy, and this is not my grandfather's industry anymore. It's not my dad's industry anymore. It's not even really my older brother's industry anymore. And it's, we are in such a critical time that these changes are going to take place. I mean, there's, we were on the front end of, of fracking because of the equipment that we make. So I, I could really just go down this rabbit trail for as long as you, I could keep you here before you don't miss your, miss your kid's dinner again tonight. But <laughs> ultimately, there, there has to, in people listening, you know, this is important for you guys to hear this energy from Ryan, you know, hear the questions from David and John and I, and realize that this industry needs you to step up. We have got to have new leaders coming into this. We've got to have new ideas, fresh people, fresh ideas coming in to help lead this industry. It will not be successful if we continue to let old ideas take us down a path. And look, I don't really have a position on proration, but I do have a position on hearing both sides of the argument. And, and I, I appreciate all the commissioners being open to that. So I'm going to jump off my high horse here, my soapbox. I want you to stay involved. You have to. And, 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 there's, and if there's people like you, what I really want you to do, and we'll highlight this later, how can people get involved? What can we do to create a new oil field? I promise you, I guarantee you this, but what is today, 2020, the, the next election is going to be 2022 for Texas railroad commissioners. Mm-hmm. Yep. I guarantee you the next two years, I'm going to, personally create an entire group of people and group of uh, you know advocates that shine a spotlight on that commission and make sure that we are bringing fresh ideas to Texas oil and gas. I'm jumping off the soap. <laughs> we all add some, just a, a quick bit of context for what you're saying. Right now in the middle of this downturn, it's really easy for people to go, oh my gosh. I mean, one of the guys presented yesterday from I remember <coughs> UT and A&M showing the number of petroleum engineering students is dropping through yeah. the floor. Look, let's... ESG and and social everything and COVID-19 and, you know, conversion to alternative fuel. In 10 years, the world will absolutely be using more oil and gas than it is right now. David says that every day. Fact. It is a fact. And you can look at the historical energy consumption in the world. I think the world today uses something like 600 quadrillion BTUs of energy a year. And every year, not only does the amount of energy goes up, but the percentage that is oil and gas goes up. And people go, wait, 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 what? but no, because as coal is dropping, as you were alluding to, it's being filled mostly with oil and natural gas. So look, we're in a downturn. We're going to have up. But to your point about being a new industry, it has been an industry that for a long time was slow to change. In the last 10 years, though, that's, that has begun to change. Like the culture of dynamism starts to come back into Texas oil and gas. And to your point, Josh, that's what should be continued, right? So so that the, the 40-somethings and 30-somethings who are ready now to step in and, and take the reins and lead – and say, hey, how do we bring data 
into mm-hmm. doing things we've never done before, bring technology and bring new work practices. How do you how do you think differently about manufacturing and all the areas that we that we do that we use in this business that have been slow to change in the past that now is the time because the opportunity is going to be there. In fact, right. I'll tell you this. And a friend of mine told me one week ago, he's a he's an oil and gas investor said, uh, Ryan, he's about two years old than I am. He said, because uh, I'm going back in private business, and he, we're talking about acquisitions. That's one thing he said, Ryan, I think the biggest opportunities of our lifetime are going to happen in the next 12 months. I think you're right. I think what's interesting is, we use this word sometimes, is perspective. And I think a lot of people do not have perspective on the world as a whole. I mean, there are still parts of the world that are still waking up. And to your point, my point, Josh, supporting that, I think – you are going to see greater consumption of oil and gas. And the crazy thing is, I don't think people appreciate or understand how oil and gas makes modern life possible. And Canada, now Oventive, when they (laughs) change your name, I know that's that's kind of their new tagline, which I think is great. I never thought that the movie Idiocracy was going to become a prophecy, but, uh, (laughs) you know. Brondo, because it's got electrolytes. I mean, I don't know where these people are coming from that that think that we can just light switch and we're. we're you, have you ever heard of us, Alex Epstein? Epstein. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The moral case for fossil fuels. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Alex yeah. and I've hung out a couple of times. I like Alex. He's a sharp guy. He's very yeah. sharp. I didn't mean to cut you, but I. Yeah. You know, so the the average age of this podcast listener of this specific one is thirty seven point five years old. There you go. Sixty male, forty female. Those are pretty good numbers Those are for great numbers. Bring yeah. in younger, diverse audience, and I, you know, David's right. I mean, that thirty seven point five year old, sixty forty male female needs to care about these issues and mm-hmm. and have the perspective on what we're talking about. So, I mean, this is our industry. I want to come back to proration for just a minute. There you go. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, so we only got a few more minutes here. Yeah. What if you guys don't? vote for proration what what type of blowback if any do you think you get from saudi russia do they share that with you when you talk to them yeah i think that depends a hundred percent on what happens with global global demand yeah so in other words if we pull out of this covid 19 thing say by mid-may and demand starts to come back we're starting to see demand come back a little bit in china then i really don't think there's much reaction at all if U.S. stays in lockdown for three more months. Uh, if the rest of the world stays predominantly in lockdown and we see demand destruction go down, say, to 70, then to 65 million barrels mm-hmm. a day total consumption, then I think – I don't know that we would see blowback as much as it is you may see the next OPEC cut right. be contingent upon U.S. cuts. But now, let, let's say this, too. That's a big May. I don't think that even will happen because I think what's going to happen is without us doing anything, I do think the Cushing, the Cushing issue, the storage issue is going to come. Right. I think you're going to see production be shut in because of that. So in other words, right now, U.S. refiners, I said they refine 19 million barrels a day. They're down to like 14 right now. Exports, U.S. exports of crude have dropped a lot. They're used, they were at three. Some speculation is they're down to one and a half, maybe maybe one million barrels a day. So there's just nowhere to put the crude. At some point, the supply chain is going to be in lockdown. Then you're going to cut. 3 million barrels of U.S. production off, maybe four. When that happens, I don't think the Saudis are going to care anymore whether we prorate. Okay. So I think they'll be like, yeah, great. You guys already shut yourselves in. So we'll go and cut. And again, just plain hypothetical for one minute. Let's say in a month from now, the Saudi minister comes out and says, we're going to, we'll cut another 3 million barrels. They're just making up numbers here. Yep. If Ryan cuts a million barrels, right? If they were, if they ever threw out that type of directive, how does that change the? I mean, I would think first it would of all, everyone would be quick to point out that I can't cut anything by myself. No, I know. But <laughs> you know how, your friends, what, yeah. what, you know, how, um, I, I think is that a scenario? Yeah, 
I think that that is a scenario. Yeah. In fact, there was chatter that that might have been what had happened. There's yeah. chatter that they may put vacant contingent on us, but they waited so long to take action. By that point, it was, hey, the world's oversupplied, 25, 30 million barrels. Go ahead and cut your 10. I think at that point, what really happens is, frankly, it may be the president. Mm-hmm. If the president says yes, even though the president doesn't officially have the power to, to prorate oil, if he says, right. yes, we're going to do that, then I, I think that the Texas oil and gas industry and the three commissioners would figure out a way to get it done. Okay. If the president says, no, we're not going to give into that, then we may not get it done. I think it does raise the stakes enough that it become, it, it, whatever the odds are today that it gets done, if Saudi makes it content, another cut contingent upon us taking action, I think it does raise the odds, but it still depends on a lot of international diplomacy that frankly, I, I don't see, okay. right? Relationships that happen in those conversations. It's, there's a lot of things happen outside of oil that feed into oil. Is there an event that would make you say there's absolutely no way I'd vote for proration? Well, I'll say this. If we wait until the point that all the storage is filled up and we've cut 4 million barrels, I don't know. It's, I, guess, I still wouldn't say no way. It just at, what, at some point you go, yeah. there's just no point anymore. Okay. But is there, a, is there an event at which I would say no way? Well, if demand started to come up, right? If we yeah. start to see demand start to come up and we think, hey, this thing is going to be in balance a lot faster, then no way, right? But I think that's obvious. Okay. So nothing from a policy perspective, if that's what you're asking. That's a good yeah. question. So I'm here. <laughs> Um, the analyst question, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, John, I mean, John's the best. He's, yeah, he bounces. He's listening to our questions going, man, I wish these guys would just stop talking. Ah, so yeah. It's just time, yeah. time for a drink. Yeah. Well, let uh, me ask, I got another one. Keep Again, going. Just dumb question We're gonna here. Keep okay. Cause I have not forever. read all of the Texas no laws, questions. but can you tie anything to a vote on proration? Like, like executive comp where you've got to hire, keep a certain number of employees. Is no. there anything you can do? You're, no. So it's either you no. cut or you don't cut. Yeah. Okay. That's not a dumb question at all. I mean, there's a lot of the, the, the conversation about flaring has raised the question, can you use some other mechanism right. to cut proration? If we ended up cutting flaring, that wouldn't really be prorating. It would just okay. be saying we're going to cut flaring, which was certainly within our purview. The benefits, if you will, would be to cut production. If you were running a big EMP company, Pioneer, EOG, I don't care, what would you do right now? Depends on which company I am, right? You've got some companies with really strong balance sheets, fairly low, fairly low debt. And if I'm them, I'm say I'm I'm doing everything I can to stockpile cash. And look, I'm this is not even just a big EMP company. There there is if you're anywhere in the energy or even big industrial space, pulp and paper, I mean, look around, you you can see which industries are challenged. Cash, how often do we hear in business cash is king, right? right. And I, I'm gonna go, I'll say my private business. As I'm looking toward that runway here, me being back in a private business, I'm absolutely thinking about acquisitions at a level I've never thought about before. Okay. Because there's going to be so many opportunities out there to either partner or to invest. So if you've got a if you've got low debt uh, in my in our companies, we have no debt. The, the companies that that I own, no debt. We got cash on the books. Um, we've got working. We've got line of credit, but we don't draw down. We could draw down on it, and, and we've worked really hard to be in a good liquidity position mm-hmm. and there's gonna be massive opportunity. So if, so if I'm in an ENP position, I'm thinking, how do I maximize my cash position right now? Because there's no way there's not going to be phenomenal opportunities when some of my competitors end up going bankrupt or need to deal or need to sell off assets to right. try to stabilize. So those deals are going to be there. I'd also be, get, even if, even if I can't get my cash position better, getting myself into a really lean operating condition so that I might be able to go get investment because there's cash out there. Right. right. The challenge is not liquidity overall. It's liquidity in this business. Would you voluntarily shut in your production? 
If I, I'll tell you this, if I was an, an ENP company and I owned my own wells, minerals, that sort of things, I would not be selling my oil at $8 a barrel. Look, people are like, well, what if you were hedged? If I was hedged, I'd take my hedge dollars and stay, absolutely yeah. hold this oil in, right? Yeah. Unless I was going to damage my reservoir and not be able to get the oil out at all. But if you're selling, you're hearing six and eight bucks a barrel at the wellhead, why anybody would sell oil at that price unless unless it was about some sort of, I don't know. I, and I think that was Will's point yesterday. It was like, why you'd be selling oil? Um, Mark, how? from University Lands. He's, he's and I like. Did y'all listen to him mm -hmm. talk? That was really interesting because he said I take a really long term view because I'm stewarding these minerals for the good of our academic institutions. I don't care about today's dollars at the wellhead. He's actually telling his operators, "Don't worry about the leases. I'd rather keep the oil in the ground and produce and get it later for a higher price." So if I owned, and, and I know some guys who right. are who are self funded, have been in the business a long time, built up a nice portfolio of kind of a private, and they're all cutting back as hard as they can. He's like, why would I sell my oil at these prices? Right. I'm gonna sell them down the road. COVID nineteen. Last question for me. Yeah, I promise. No, would you no, go? Good. Do we go back to work, or what would you do? I would. I wish I had my graph here. I would. The risk profile. I, back when I was in private business, I built my career doing risk analysis. Yeah. Not not like you do it maybe, but looking at assets and failures and reliability, and mechanical Are you risk. Terrifying to talk to as David is. Uh, probably Cause worse because I, I I probably get I talk way too fast as you can tell as I've been on this call on this, this microphone. There the the portion of our population that is really at a at a pretty high risk is not that big. It's basically people over the age of 55 or 65, depending on which group you're looking at, and people with pre-existing conditions. So I think if you start saying, let, let's not have everybody shelter in place, but let's have the, the portion that's at high risk shelter in place or quarantine. And then still, let's try to eliminate the big gatherings where there's really obvious opportunities to spread this. You may need some different protocols in airports. I feel like half the time I get sick, it's because I'm sitting on a plane or an airport. Right. Yeah. So if you can, if you can control a couple of those things, I feel like, hey, if you're... I mean, I don't know if y'all see it, but for under the age of 20, the risk of COVID-19 death is the same as the flu, right? right? But it's then the old. So, so how do we let the people who are really marginally higher risk start getting back and also do a few things to kind of hold it back? But no, I would not. If, if you continue, you'll, people in the risk analysis business will appreciate this. Yeah. If you, if when the Department of Transportation is designing a road, they look at how much they should spend versus the risk level, the number of accidents, number of incidents. And they actually have a dollar amount that they assign per injury or per even per fatality on the roads. I don't know exactly what that number is. I've heard different numbers. Somebody told me it's $200,000 per life that they calculate. Well, if you look at the number of deaths that we have said we're going to prevent due to COVID-19 social mm -hmm. distancing. So the original model was it was going to be something like 400,000 right. people. Now they got down 100,000 people. And the amount of money it's cost us, we've put a value of like $15 million per life. I mean, there's no industry in the world that uses that. So why? So it seems like we've we've overcompensated from risk perspective and the negative economic impacts on so many people. I mean, people who are going to struggle now to pay for college or for a decade. For, yeah. I mean, yeah. for so long. So it, it seems so far out of whack that this we're, we're I think we're going to look back and say that we didn't handle that well. We should have done a better yeah. risk analysis, figure out how to protect those who are at risk keep them isolated, but then not, not just drive our entire economy into the tank. Well, I share your opinion. Shameless plug. If you like barbecue, since we're here, yes, we at the three of us will be hosting a barbecue in Midland. Not nice. later this, this is year. an understatement. This, so John, this is the barbecue. Yeah. So John, David and I are just, you know, we got a little bit of money. So we sponsor koozies and stuff. John is a barbecue extraordinaire and he throws without question, the premier oil and gas barbecue 
It's in uh, late September, early October. So mm-hmm. you have to get a hold of John on this. But he wants you to come be a come be a judge. You come be a judge. It is more food. You will be. We had about forty companies cook last year. You know, I heard about this. Two, two thousand yeah. people. No I one think- got sick, and uh, <laughs> nice. so it was a su- success. Yeah, it was great, and you probably did. It was in Texas Monthly two years ago. This last year, it, uh, no publications, but two thousand people. It's just a phenomenal event. So we we'll, would have had eighty teams there if we had had the room for it at the yeah. deal. I mean, we had a backlog. Yeah, that was a, one thing in oil and gas. That's awesome. had a backlog in twenty nineteen. Yeah. Probably a little easier to get some space this year. It'll no, no, we're listen. That's, trust me, this thing will be full. In fact, now actually, if it's if it's a free thing, it'll be even more full, right? Well, and everybody because of just I mean, really, John's reputation it it, it draws a phenomenal crowd of people. And uh, mo- I mean, you know, if you go to the OTC or the PBIOS or LAC or whatever trade show you'll go to, you'll get more work done at the barbecue than you will at any of these trade shows. Nice. You've got real questions. No, I think no, no, no. Well, one of the things that we do on every guest that we bring on the podcast, we ask two questions every time, and then we screw up the in-between. Okay. Uh, the one, first one is, have you been on a podcast? And the last one is, if you could give yourself one piece of advice, your younger 20, you know, 20 years ago self, or a, a person coming out of school now, a mantra, a piece of wisdom that you've either learned or lived by the entire time, what would that advice be? This is going to sound so, so easy. And so I'm going to give a little explanation, but it is, everyone says, oh, never stop learning. And that's so cliche that you, what does that really mean? What I mean is, man, I think back to my days sitting in that refinery at Marathon and I'm like, why didn't I learn what every freaking valve in that plant did? Why didn't I learn exactly how that operator does his job? Why didn't I show up at night one time and just say, hey, show me how to actually run this plant. If I, I learn, I'm learning at a faster pace today than I think that I ever have, because I'm reading books on everything from behavioral economics to, um, to, to human psychology and motivation. I'm reading about, um, you know, decision processes, data analysis. I mean, you name it. And I'm researching it to learn more. And I'm, I, I had this impression early in my life that, oh, we learn, we're able to learn the most when we're in like our teenage years that like, that's what, and it's just baloney. I mean, our capacity, you hear the studies about we only use, the average person only uses like 12% of their brain power over yeah. the course of their life. So mine would be, I mean, I've been very blessed. I've had unbelievable opportunities. Most of them have come from from failure. But but through that failure, I've always learned. And it's just, but my parents are both teachers. So I think that was kind of part of what was instilled in me. So I'd go back and I would say, man, from that first job, don't wait to be told what to do. Don't wait for your boss to tell you, this is what you need to learn. This is what book you take. Treat every day as if that's another day at school. You got to study whatever material is in front of you. And if it, if you can't figure out a way to make to if what's in front of you is not interesting, figure out a way to make it interesting. Immerse yourself in it. That's what I would tell myself. Love it. That's good so advice. Where uh, how can people get a hold of you? And we're get, you're going back into private business. Yep. We're in seventy five countries around the world. This nice. is the top. We're we're huge in Japan. We just got our Japanese really? numbers <laughs> today. I, we're so Konnichiwa. Yes. <laughs> We are number 43 in general business in Japan. So thank you to our Japanese audience. I don't know how that happened. My sister-in-law is Japanese. So I texted her today. I was like, hey, tell your parents to listen to me. That's awesome. Good for you guys. Yeah. So so you're going back into private business. How can people get a hold of you? What is your website that you're going to be using? What's going on? The easiest way to get a hold of me is just my website is just ryansitton.com. R-Y-A-N-S-I-T-T-O-N.com. And that's going to stay active because even as I'm, I'm, I've got, 
two books, one coming out later this year, one coming out next year on totally different subjects. Uh, one, yeah. the first one is called the myth of status. It's in a, it's kind of about learning and developing and growing and finding purpose and yeah. letting your purpose unlock your leadership. The second one is I'm not sure what the title is going to be yet, but it's basically going to be that how, how you combine data and experts to produce the best performance in heavy industry. <laughs> so it's covered a range of topics here. Yeah. I don't know what the third one's going to be about, but all those will be on my, on my website. And, um, so be a whole bunch so of Ryan sitting.com. That's it. Great. Well, that is great guys. I, I don't know. We're bumping up on probably an hour and 20 hour and 30 minutes. Somewhere that, that the whole range thing's so, worth listening to. Oh man, this is I an awesome edit it at all. No, I agree with that. <laughs> oh, come on. No one wants to hear parts. me talk for it. No, I mean, we cannot possibly be that cool. Oh, you, you think know, we're, I'm incredibly cool. Uh, okay. All right. So I'm not used to that. Right. Yeah. He's got, he's got purple shoelaces. I, yeah. So whiskers.com is our, we, so we have, we have phenomenal sponsors, okay. seven, just great world-class companies. And, um, but the one that we talk about every time is whiskers.com and where David makes fun of me. So at some point whiskers is going to send me some shoelaces. So we're going to hand those out to our guests, but I got to give a call out to my good friend, Armando Rios down in Raymondville. Texas. Yeah. So he wants free boots Armando's and I'm going to get $20 worth of shoelaces. This is, okay. yeah, this is a terrible <laughs> trade off for me. But uh, Mr. Sitton, Commissioner Sitton, thank you for your time today. Glad to be here. We sincerely appreciate it. Uh, John, Daniel, yes. good luck with your new role at Daniel Energy Partners. What's you. your, we'll plug your company too. What's your website? DanielEP.com. DanielEP.com. I had to think about that. I haven't been there yet because I haven't designed the website yet. Yeah. So well, that's coming. It'll be a couple of weeks. Yeah. So thank you for coming on and, and helping us out. And David, always a pleasure. Yeah, that's been good. Glad to have John on here. We've been talking about doing this for a long time. Yeah. Ryan, thank you so much for yeah. all your work. For the, the great state of Texas. Absolutely. And and uh, Jonathan, Jonathan, our sound our guy, sound thanks guy, for yeah. setting us up, everybody. Um, listen, you can go away for a minute, but your career, you, it's clear public service is in your blood. It's passion. You you will come back. I will force this. I'm excellent at talking people into things. <laughs> so you're not going anywhere for long. Thank you for your service thus far. And uh, uh, we appreciate it. So that's going to wrap up this episode of oilfield360.com or oilfield360 podcast. You can visit us at oilfield360.com or any social media channel out there, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn. And we just appreciate it. I joked about our Japanese audience, but but we are in over 75 countries, 115 U.S. cities, 43 states. Great audience. It's growing weekly, and we just appreciate our audience. So thank you guys very much. Any questions, get a hold of us. Good luck to everybody. Good luck to you in the industry right now. I know it's a tough time. Social distance, wash your hands, stay safe. Thank you. For more information on today's guest and to learn more about our sponsors, please visit www.oilfield360.com. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, www.simmonspsc.com. World Oil, www.worldoil.com. Prang & Associates, www.prang.com. EIV Capital, www.eivcapital.com. Galtway Industries, www.galtwayindustries.com. Tomahawk Safety, www.tomahawksafety.com. Range Valuation Services, www.rangevaluationservices.com. Lockton Global Energy and Marine, www.lockton.com. Piper Sandler Companies, NYSE PIPR, is a leading investment bank and institutional securities firm driven to help clients realize the power of partnership. Securities brokerage and investment banking services are offered in the U.S. through Piper Sandler & Co., member SIPC and FINRA. 
in Europe through Piper Sandler Limited, authorized and regulated by the UK Financial Conduct Authority, and in Hong Kong through Piper Sandler Hong Kong Limited, authorized and regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission. Asset management products and services are offered through four separate investment advisory affiliates. U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, Registered Piper Sandler Investment Management, LLC, PIPR Capital Partners, LLC, and Piper Sandler & Co., and Guernsey-based Parallel General Partners Limited, authorized and regulated by the Guernsey Financial Services Commission, Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler are the energy specialists of Piper Sandler.